Okay, if you've got a Bible, you can turn it to Revelation chapter 2. And we're looking at verse 12 onwards. So, Revelation chapter 2, from verse 12 onwards. And so we are starting, or we started last week as a little introduction, um, a short series on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So just as a bit of a reminder from last week, um, the Apostle John is in his old age now, and uh, he is on a Greek island called Patmos. And some 50 years or so earlier, Uh, John was a close friend of Jesus. He was there when Jesus was crucified. He was around when Jesus returned to his disciples three days later, showing that he'd risen from the dead. He was there in the early church. And because of persecution, because of um, opposition to, um, to this good news, to the gospel, to who Jesus Um, is and all he claims, then John finds himself being exiled, being um, forced out, being um, left on uh, um, the island of Patmos, which is a Greek island. And Jesus here appears to him. And it's from this encounter that the book of Revelation is written. And it's written primarily for seven churches in modern-day Turkey. And uh, in it, Jesus has a message for each of them. And over the next seven weeks, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to take each one. So let's read um, today's um, passage to today's letter. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamon, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, nor even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give to that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for um, these words preserved for us today. We want to thank you that you still speak to your people today. We want to thank you that as we gather, lifting your name high, you're amongst us and uh, you want to speak to us this morning. And Lord, I'm aware our preaching is not perfect, my words aren't perfect, but your word is. And so as we look at your word, I pray that you would speak to us through it. That Holy Spirit, you would um, encounter us, you would encourage us, you would challenge us, you would do everything in us that you want to do. Help us. We really need your help. I really need your help. And we really need your help. Um, and we know you love to come to us. So thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so today we are looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. We're looking at the third church in this book of Revelation. The third letter. We're not doing them in order? Is there a... Well, I guess, you know, is that a problem? Well, you have to ask the question, is there, is there a reason for why they're in order? In the order that they're in? If you think it's that, the, the kind of the... If you think it's that the churches, the, the, the letters to the churches uh, are there to kind of, in some way, symbolically represent the life of the church over the last 2,000 years, then obviously it would matter that they're in order. You know, if you think that... One church represents the time between uh, um, uh, the Middle Ages. One church represents the time of the Reformation around the 15th, 14th, 15th and 16th century. If you think that one church represents the last 100 years or so, um, then yes, it does matter. Now, I'm not sure there's much evidence in the Bible for this view. Um, so, to me, that, that one doesn't really hold too fast. Um, if you think that, well, the order was mainly for uh, ease of um, delivery, can we have the first slide up, Mona? So here are, the, uh, here are the churches in a minute. You'll see them where they are in modern-day Turkey. And what you'll notice, what you would notice, is that it works quite handy for delivery um, because you would start at one church and move around and so it kind of works in the way you would, you would deliver them. It's more almost like for postal efficiency, really. I promise. I promise. Um, but, do you know, more important than what the order is, is what each letter is. This is what Jesus has to say to each church. As we've read this morning, the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. There you go. It'd be easy, wouldn't it? Pop over from Patmos to Ephesus, up to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Maybe that's why they're in the order that they're in. We don't know. But what we do know is that these are the words of Jesus to these churches. 
he's interested in each local church. Some of these are big, some of them are small. Each has its own set of circumstances. But Jesus cares about local church. And do you know what? There is something in each of these letters for us to learn and to take hold of. So I don't think it matters that we're not doing them order. I think that's okay. And so this morning, I think there are a few things that Jesus wants to say to this church, uh, that Jesus is saying to this church in Pergamum that we can learn from. Well done. Don't compromise and look ahead. Okay, so a bit about Pergamum. Um, I've got another slide. Click on to the next slide. There we go. There's a, there's a little bit of uh, Pergamum. This is a bit like my, my holiday snaps, uh, although I've never been here. Has anyone been to Pergamum, which is Bergamer? Uh, I can, you're cheating, though. <laughs> but it's a lot easier for you to have been there. No one else? No one else? Oh, okay. I, I have never, I've never been there. We've only been to Turkey once, and shamelessly it was to a fairly touristy place where it was as easy to get egg and chips on a morning as it was to get a Turkish breakfast, but it was fun all the same. Um, so, Pergamum. It was, it's known as the city of Bergamo now, um, and it was kind of the state capital, really, of, of, of Asia Minor, of, of modern-day Turkey. It had lots of political power, Lots of different gods were worshipped. Many temples to Greek gods, um, to Dionysus, the god of wine. Athene, god of wisdom. Asclepius, god of medicine and healing. And uh, the biggest temple in Pergamum was for Zeus, god of sky and thunder. And in Pergamum, it was the... the um, I think it was the earliest known place uh, for state-sponsored worship of the Roman emperor. See, Roman emperors were seen as godlike and of worthy of worship. Originally, it happened whereby um, once a Roman emperor died, people in, the, in, in Rome had said, well, let's all have a vote, and if we think that they were, they were worthy of worship and godlike, then we'll make them a, a god. But actually, one of the Roman emperors said, well, why do I need to wait until I'm dead? Do you know, I think I'm worthy of worship now. In fact, you should all worship me now, even while I'm alive. And it kind of just went from there, and this kind of cult grew up about worshipping the emperor, the Roman emperor. And so Pergamon was a well-known centre for the area for emperor worship. It also had a huge library. It, had, it, had, it was known for its massive library. It had hundreds of thousands of scrolls in it. And in fact, it's where we get the word parchment from. Pergamum, the, the word parchment, for kind of parchment scrolls, comes from Pergamum, from the name Pergamum. It had a massive library. Libraries are important to places. I, I love... Has anyone been to Thornaby Library? Anyone know Thornaby Library? It's got a nice new library, but there's a... There's a sign in there. It says in it, libraries gave us power from uh, a quote from the rock band Manic Street Preachers. Library gave, libraries gave us power. This whole idea that we can learn from libraries. We can, it gives power to all of us. 
as we learn and, and learn knowledge. I'm not sure if uh, you know, everyone was allowed to learn from this library in Pergamum, but hey, it was very famous for its library. And so it is to this church, in this city, that Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you live. See, that can be used in all sorts of ways, can't it? If I, uh, if I lend Matthew here some money, and he says, I, I will pay it back, I-, I promise I'll pay it back, and I say, don't worry, I know where you live. I'm saying a jokey way, don't I? As if I'll come and get it when I want it. Or, you know, we see kids playing somewhere where they shouldn't be playing. You kids, get off there! I know where you live! Or it can be done in a very kind of serious, threatening way. I know where you live. I'm going to come and get you. How's it being used here? Well, actually, it's words of encouragement and words of comfort. Jesus says to this church, I know, I know where you live. He knows this city. He knows there is significant opposition to following him. Where Satan has his throne. He says it twice, where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. This could refer to a few things. It could be uh, the worship of all these different gods uh, in the city. It could have been the fact that it was the political capital of the area. Um, But most likely, as, as most people say, uh, clever people who read this thing, it was probably because of the emperor worship. It was probably because it was well known for its emperor worship. And people would have been expected to join in with the emperor worship. Everyone would have been expected to join in, except the Jews. That's another uh, discussion for another day. Um, they would have been exempt, but everyone else would have been expected to join in, join in with the rituals of the temple, declare that the emperor was lord of all. You know, you could have your other gods too, but the emperor was lord of all. We wouldn't have been able to sing that song this morning declaring that Jesus is lord. And you know, persecution followed if Christians didn't follow this. So you have the local population with hundreds of, well, scores of uh, gods of their own, um, and then you have uh, this, the Romans saying, and the Roman powers saying, look, the emperor is the most important person, he's the most important god, and you've got Christians saying, you know, for us, it's Jesus. Not only is he the most important, but actually he's the only one worthy of worship. And so they, Jesus refers to uh, a man in this uh, church, who has been in this church, named Antipas. We're not told anything about him, other than he's been part of this Christian community in this city. And uh, he was killed for his faith, we know that. Early church tradition kind of says that he suffered a really grim death, uh, which is really horrible. But you know, the church is told, well done. Well done for holding fast to my name. Even, even in extreme times of persecution, like when Antipas was killed. 
says, even, even in the days of Antipas. It suggests that there's time. There, was, there were times when persecution was worse than others. And uh, countries where persecution of Christians is, is more common will be aware of this. You know, there's times when it may quieten down and then there's times when it will become more severe. You know, I'm grateful we live in a place where this isn't the case. That I'm very thankful for that. I'm very grateful to God for that. But you know, there will still be a price to pay for following Jesus here, in your workplace, in your school, in your university. Your employer may say to you, no, you must, you must put the, your career and the objectives of this company first in all the decisions you make in your life. You may have to say, I can't. I have to put Jesus first in every decision. Your boss may say, well, you, you know, you've got no future in this company. Or a teacher may say, you, you need to know that we are all here by accident. We are all here because, we, uh, because of an accident billions of years ago, and that's why we're here, and there's no discussion about it. And as a student, you may say, well, actually, do you know, I believe there's a purpose to why we're here on this earth. You know, your teacher may treat you as ignorant, as uneducated. You know, it was just interesting in the news this week seeing a BBC presenter being mocked because of his view that God created the world. There was a creator to this earth. God, he got mocked in the news for that. And who knows what opposition to following Jesus will look like in the future, in this nation. I'm not being pessimistic. We just don't know, do we? We just don't know. But the encouragement is this. Jesus knows the culture we live in. He does. Just as he knew what Pergamon was like. He knows what it's like to be a Christian here. He knows what it's like for you in your school. He knows what it's like for you in your college, in your workplace, on your street. He knows the laws the government pass that go against his will. He knows. And because he knows, he cares. See, you may think God doesn't care about the things you're facing right now, but guess what? He does. He does cares for you, he cares for this church, he cares for churches across Teesside. But there's something else he wants to address in this church. This church in Pergamon. Rather, rather than saying specifically what it is, he, he refers to the kind of teaching that it results from. See, our behaviour is usually shaped by something we believe in our minds or something we think, something we've learnt. Obviously, there's extreme cases like addiction and things like that or we've learned behaviour. But actually, generally, most things we do are shaped by what we think. Would we agree? Fair, fair, fair point. See, that's why teaching is so important. That's why teaching is so, so important. Teaching on Sunday mornings, teaching one another as we gather together, teaching in midweek groups, uh, teaching on our our monthly theology things, teaching in all sorts of settings. 
listening and reading stuff that builds us up. So there's some teaching that Jesus wants to correct in this church in Pergamum. And he refers to two errors, two types of teaching that are harmful to the church. He talks about um, the teaching of Balaam and uh, he talks about the Nicolaitans, which I can't pronounce, but if I pronounce it confidently enough, you'll believe me. So we're not sure what the teaching of the Nicolaitans actually relates to. Um, we'll find them when we go and look at the church in Ephesus as well. We're not exactly sure, but it's probably like the teaching of Balaam. And we do find Balaam. We find Balaam in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, so we're going to focus there for a little bit. Okay, so, if you know anything about Balaam, what is it? His donkey, yeah, everyone knows, or many people know, about Balaam and his donkey. That's what they'll know. That God spoke, uh, used, opened the mouth of this donkey to speak to Balaam. We're not looking at that this morning. Um, We're actually looking at uh, something else around Balaam. This guy Balaam. So Israel, a bit of background, Israel's come out of Egypt, as uh, Jody read to us this morning from um, uh, Exodus, I think it was. Yes. Uh, they've come out of Egypt, Moses is their leader and they're facing battles with people in the area and the king of Moab is a guy called Balak and he's getting a bit nervous that the the, the Israelites are having these battles and getting a bit close to him and so he sends for uh, Balaam now Balaam's a prophet but he's not a good one he's a pretty nasty mean piece of work he's a bit crooked Um, and he asks Balaam to curse Israel for him Balaam says he can't. He says, I can't do it because God won't let me. I can only do what God lets me and I just can't curse Israel for you. In fact, he ends up pronouncing a blessing on them and you can find this all in Numbers 22 to 25. But we read something else about Balaam. We read that in Numbers 31, verse 16. Although he hasn't outwardly cursed the Jews... He seems to have advised Balak of a sneaky trick, another way to hinder them. He says, you know, why don't you just kind of get your Moabite women to to kind of entice the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Marry some of their men, get them to just take part in some of their sacrifices, mix things up a little bit, get some of the, the Israelite men to kind of come along to the pagan feasts, have food sacrificed to local idols, and often with this came uh, pagan prostitution. Um, don't say they have to give up their God. Just get them to mix in a bit of local religion with it. And you'll see what happens. It was a sneaky trick. Actually, it drew the Israelites away from the living God. This is God who had brought them out of Egypt, who had rescued his people to be his. And now they're saying, well... We don't want to be yours and yours alone. We'll just mix it up with local stuff. Joining in with idol worship. So what's all this got to do with Pergamum? Well, Jesus says to this church in Pergamum, you're doing the same. You're compromising my lordship of your lives. And there's, there's even some amongst you that say it's okay to do that. They're saying it's, it's okay to be a Christian, but to join in with the worship of other gods, to join in with the worship of idols, to join in with the worship of the emperor. 
It's compromise. It's meeting in the middle. Saying Jesus is Lord on this on this hand, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of everything of my whole life. On this hand, yeah, but there's areas of life I don't want him to be Lord of. Do you know, I'll try and meet somewhere in the middle. It's compromise. Life doesn't work like that. So what about us? You know, we compromise in all sorts of ways. May not be temples, idols of stone, but we'll make idols of anything. I loved what Jill brought to us this morning. We'll make idols of anything. What about pleasure? The world tells us pleasure is good. Have pleasure. Now, uh, you know, pleasure, pleasure is okay. I like pleasure. But the world tells us pleasure is the most important thing you can have in life. Comfort is what counts. Okay, yeah, but it's good to enjoy things. It's good to be thankful for things. But we can turn it into a God. Just do whatever brings you pleasure. Don't think about anyone else. This is what the world tells us. And as sexual immorality followed um, idol worship in Balaam's day, so it does today. We're told, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter. As long as your immediate pleasure, as long as it's for your immediate pleasure, that's the most important thing. Do you know that's a lie? See, we compromise by saying, Lord, you can be Lord of my life, but just not these bits here. Just not my career. Just not my family. Just not my money. Just not what I choose to look at on the internet when no one's watching. Just not the conversations I have when I want to be mean to people. We're compromising. Because often these things are our idols, or they're rooted in our idols. So as the church in Pergamum had to take these words seriously, you know, I believe so do we. This is what uh, Don Carson says, and Don Carson pulled us no punches on this. I think I've got a slide of this somewhere. He says this, People do not drift into holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Listen, are you aware of areas in your life where you've drifted? Drifted into compromise? Drifted from God's best for you? So what's the answer? Well, the answer's here from Jesus. Jesus tells us the answer. He says, repent. That's what he says. It's not a word we use much in our modern day language. And when we do, it's usually misunderstood. But repentance means to turn around. It means to have a change of heart, a change of mind. Behaviour usually follows, but actually it's primarily a change of mind, a change of heart. But the problem is it's got so much religious baggage to it 
that it's kind of thought as negative. It's kind of thought that if we're repenting lots, it means that we're really not much make, making much progress in life, in the Christian life. Well, actually, the reality is repentance is a sign that we're maturing in the Christian life. Repentance is a sign that we're growing in the Christian life. But there's a good way and a bad way to repent. There's a right way and a wrong way to repent. What's the wrong way? Well, the wrong way is we kind of treat repentance like, if I repent, it kind of will keep God happy. It'll keep God on my side. It'll mean that I'll get things from God if I repent. I'll have all the things that I want. I'll have life how I want it if I repent. It's self, that's a self-centred, self-righteous way of repenting. What's the right way? Actually, repentance is tapping into, engaging with the love of Christ. It means realising that we're eternally loved by him. We're in Christ forever. And do you know what that does? It weakens our tendency to drift. It weakens our tendency to drift away from the things that are not of God. So do you see, repentance isn't just a once in a, once in a Christian life thing. I repented when I came to Jesus and that was it. No, repentance is an all-of-life thing. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance brings life. So what's the answer to compromise and giving in to sin in our lives? It's to turn from trying to find joy and purpose in those things and turning to, recognising, delighting in the joy of knowing Jesus and being his. Listen, here's an example. What if, what if we were compromising with unhelpful talk with others, with our friends, always putting people down, always, always talking bad about others, always talking about their, you know, that person's failures, that person's weaknesses? Why? Because, well, that makes me feel better. Actually, it elevates me above others. Um, actually, it makes an idol out of me. It makes me feel how better I am than that person. But you know, godly repentance is seeing that Jesus loves me more than I can imagine. And my value is rooted in the fact that he gave his life for me. Your value is rooted in the fact that he gave his life for you. When you didn't deserve it. When I didn't deserve it. He did it. Listen, turn your heart to that. Let your actions, let your words be shaped by God's heart for you. Value isn't found in putting others down. Actually, allow that type of repentance to shape how you speak and how you talk about others. That's godly repentance. Listen, don't compromise. Even in things like how you talk about others. Listen, whatever it is, change your heart. Turn to Jesus. Allow his love for you to transform you.
See, Jesus is serious. He's serious about compromise. So much so that he says, look, if you don't, I'll sort it out another way. He says, otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's committed to seeing the church being all it can be. He's passionate about every church. And that if there are things that are holding it back to devotion in him, he'll deal with it. This is not meek and mild Jesus. This is Jesus, passionate about his church, passionate about his people. Some people say, don't be so radical. Don't be so radical about compromise. Chill out, relax a little bit. How can we when Jesus takes it so seriously? Finally, are we okay? Holding in there? Yeah, this has been challenging for me as well. It's one of those preachers where as you're working through it, God's speaking to you, challenging you. It's not been a nice few days. But hey, God's word's good for us. So, well done. Don't compromise. But look ahead. See, there is something better, something more wonderful available than compromise, Jesus is saying. In these final few verses... They're really not easy to understand. He's kind of talking about hidden manna, a white stone with a name on it, all this kind of stuff. Jesus says to them, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Manna was food dropped from heaven by God to sustain the Israelites when they were in the desert, in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying here, look, don't be deceived by pagan feasts with food sacrificed to idols. There's a better food, Jesus is saying. You know, and if you read on in Revelation, you see that all of world history is going towards ending up at a feast. A feast. A wedding supper. A celebration. Jesus says, live for that. Live in the light of that. Live in anticipation of that. Don't settle for what can just temporarily satisfy. Live for what's going to last. And he says, you can benefit from it now. This is eternal life now, Jesus says. Listen, this is Jesus' words in John 6, verse 31. He's been asked about manna from heaven. And Jesus says, do you remember? I am the bread of life. Come to me. I'll satisfy that spiritual hunger that you have. Is that you today? Have you come to a place in your life, perhaps it's maybe your first time here, perhaps you've grown up in the church and you're just kind of, you're just still kind of working things out, but you're knowing, you know, there's a spiritual hunger in me. Life just doesn't seem to satisfy. Jesus says, come to me. I'm the bread of life. Listen, I will satisfy what you're after. I will come into your life. He will come into your life. Listen, if you've never made that decision, today is the day you can do it. Come and speak to us. Come to Jesus. You can come to him. He will come into your life. And then Jesus goes on to say, I'll give that person a white stone with a new name on it. 
known only to the one who receives it. There's lots of ideas about what a white stone refers to. Not sure what the new name is. But you know, names are really important in the Bible. When someone is given a new name, it usually means there's been some extraordinary encounter with God. Something's happened. Something significant has happened. Abraham becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Simon becomes Peter. Names carried much more significance than they do for those of us from a Western society. Now, we don't know all the symbolism of the white stone and the new name, but clearly it would have been encouragement to them. They could trust Jesus. He wouldn't abandon them. They would not be abandoned by him. And do you know, it needs to be encouragement to us too. Listen, whatever you're going through, whatever life is throwing at you, whatever compromise you're finding yourself in and having to battle against, he won't abandon you. He won't abandon you. So, well done. Don't compromise. Look ahead. You know, I believe that's a word for us today as well. Don't compromise. Don't do it. Listen, see Jesus in all his beauty, in all his wonder. See the cross where he gave his life for you and I. See that he wasn't beaten. In fact, he beat death and was resurrected. Listen, see that, I think it was uh, Frumileo said something about second chances. See that he's the God that gives second chances and third chances. And see that he comes to you again and again. When you compromise and go, oh, do you know, I've just messed up again. Listen, come to him. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll empower you for next time. Listen, come to him. Repent. Turn to him. Joyfully, turn to him. And see his love for you. Listen, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to worship and we're going to respond. And what I think I'd like to do is we're going to worship and take up our offering and then, you know, as we're doing that, if you're aware that, you know, that there's places where I've compromised, there's places where, do you know, I've, I just need to turn to him in this. Come to him. If you, if you need someone to pray with you, what I'm going to ask is if you're on the ministry team, would you just come and stand over here and then so that if anyone wants to come and pray with someone, some people find it helpful to have someone pray with them, then they can go and pray with them over there. So ministry team, once we've taken up our offering, if you can come and go and stand over here. And if you want prayer, just go and, sta- go and stand with someone and ask them to pray for you. But let's come to Jesus. Enjoy knowing he's for us knowing he loves us, knowing that as we look to him, as we turn in repentance to him, we see that he empowers us, he heals us up, he helps us, he weakens those tendencies to drift from him as we delight in his love for us and his passion for his people.
Let's do that together. Let's worship, take up our offering, and then if you would like prayer, please do come over to here.